Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We actually see a system that has been in place for decades that has successfully prevented the proliferation of nuclear weapons to a large number of countries. I'm cautiously optimistic that we won't be seeing, you know, a run on nuclear weapons in a couple of uh, different states in the next decade or so. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Scott Roker and Jessica Bufford from the Nuclear Threat Initiative join Rory Medcalf in conversation. They discuss global nuclear non-proliferation and arms control efforts, the increasingly challenging strategic environment this work is carried out within, and the current outlook for nuclear disarmament. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. Welcome back to the National Security Podcast, and in this episode, we're going to be having a, a a pretty deep conversation on many things: nuclear, nuclear non-proliferation, uh, arms control, and that really challenging international environment on the nuclear front. With two expert guests from NTI, the Nuclear Threat Initiative in the United States, but with a very international, very global focus. So it's a privilege to welcome Scott Roker and Jessica Bufford to the studio. We're going to have a conversation that begins with, I guess, the mission of NTI, but I want us to go into, obviously, the global non-proliferation challenges and opportunities in Australia, uh, the question not only of uh, of AUKUS and the Australian uh, nuclear-powered submarine ambition, but what the Australian government can do on non-proliferation, and then I guess uh, a sense of what's coming, what's coming next. So, welcome. I might um, look begin with a question, really about NTI, and I might begin with um, with you, Scott, if I may, for a start. What is NTI, uh, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, and and how does it perhaps differ from other organisations, whether think tanks or uh, government organisations or research organisations? Yeah, well, thank you so much first for having us here today. I'm really excited for this conversation, and it's great to be back in Australia. Uh, yeah, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, we're, we're a pretty unique uh, institution as it relates to other think tanks in Washington, D.C. So we've been around for a little more than 20 years, and we're really focused on creating a more safe and peaceful world. Um, but we're different than other think tanks in this space uh, in terms of how we do that. We're really looking for actionable solutions um, that will instigate systematic change within governments around the globe. And so we really are focused on actions and activities that will uh, achieve that systematic change for the better. And I guess if I could just dig into that a little bit further, for example, uh, how does the relationship with governments work or how does the funding model work? You know. 
how can we be confident, if you like, that NTI is the right partner in this space? If I can push you a little bit on that, Scott. That's a fair question and uh, an important one because you, you'll see that a, a number of the people who have worked at NTI will sometimes go into the U.S. government. I previously worked in the U.S. government before joining NTI uh, a little less than two years ago. Um, and so we're we're very uh, cognizant about being separated from U.S. government officially. We do not accept any U.S. government funds for the work that we do. Uh, we do work with a number of other countries around the globe um, in terms of our activities, and um, that's really kind of the focus of our attention is working with uh, other countries around the world. So you're in Australia uh, for a conference, for a nuclear disarmament verification conference, actually, in Sydney, which is, I think, just just concluded. Uh, So, Jessica, I might just turn to you for a moment to ask you a little bit about uh, about that event, uh, what was its value, why was it held, and and what's NTI's role? Thanks, Rory, and thanks so much for having us on the podcast today. The International Partnership for Nuclear Disarmament Verification is an ongoing initiative that includes more than 25 countries with and without nuclear weapons. So what we're trying to do is tackle the really difficult questions around how can we engage in a verifiable disarmament process that gives assurance to non-nuclear weapon states that disarmament has happened while protecting sensitive information and fulfilling states' obligations to not transmit sensitive proliferant information. So the meeting that we just had in Sydney was an opportunity for the partnership to come together and to assess the work that we've done over the past several years. This meeting was particularly important because it was our first in-person end-of-year plenary since the pandemic began. So it was just wonderful to get a chance to gather in person and to have not just the formal conversations, but the coffee breaks and, and the lunch conversations and identify areas for future work. In the past, we've done a lot of work on uh, a fictional country that we're calling Ipendovia, and working through what's the dismantlement verification process for one warhead. And we're realizing in the real world, it'll take multiple warheads and many years to accomplish that. So how does that change the lessons that we've learned from a single warhead, more a, a discrete time frame? Uh, so there's still lots of work to mm-hmm. be done, and we look forward to making more progress on that in the year to come. Because I guess when we think about verification, uh, which is so essential to any kind of durable uh, arms control or disarmament regime. In fact, it's an extraordinarily technical set of issues, right? It's it's deeply political, it's deeply technical. uh, And when we talk about nuclear disarmament in the abstract, I I suspect that a lot of very well-meaning people uh, don't uh, dwell at depth about how difficult it's going to be to to administer to build that kind of trust. So maybe if you, if you could just explain a little bit more uh, about whether this is you know preparing for some kind of distant future um, hypothetical disarmament uh, agenda, or, or whether in fact it's a, it, it's a work uh, that has a more contemporary relevance. Why why do all of this work on verification now in in a world where uh, we've got so many, if you like, immediate strategic challenges. Certainly the future for arms control seems pretty bleak right now, Uh, but we at NTI firmly believe that keeping the long view when thinking about these tremendous challenges is essential. Uh, We've seen that over and over again, particularly uh, in the U.S.-Russian arms control space. There have been seasons where we've made a lot of progress, we've had a lot of agreements. There have been seasons where it's come to a standstill. 
And yet the international community needs to maintain capabilities and uh, personal capacity in order to confront these challenges in, in the future. Because if we stop working on these now, there's no way we're going to be able to address them in the future. So while some of the technologies that we're looking at are geared towards a future uh, regime, these technologies exist today and could help inform the next round of arms control, not just progression towards a world without nuclear weapons. So I guess when a political window or a strategic window arises at some point in the future, the last thing we'd want is to say, well, that's great, but we actually haven't uh, prepared the uh, you know the technical requirements for verification. I, I, I kind of get that. Um, Scott, I might come back to you, and I don't know if you've got any additional comment to make on those issues, but I also wanted to um, turn to other work that NTI does. I think one of your signature uh, products is uh, the Nuclear Security Index. It's been coming out for quite a few years now, and it would be useful to know exactly what this is. It's kind of a it's kind of a report card, and uh, uh, what's its value? When, when's the next one coming out? Yeah, great. And on the, the question of IPNDV, just one other thing to note, um, it's, it's a really innovative partnership because it's demonstrating tangibly how countries who are non-possessor states, countries without mm. nuclear weapons, have an important role to play in verifying disarmament agreements. And so that's the real novel piece of IPNDV. And I think it's a really important signal to be sending right now, given the concerns around, you know, non-consensus at the NPT review conference. There needs to be some progress that's being made on disarmament, and this is one area where we're seeing some of that. As it relates to the nuclear security index, yeah, that's uh, one of the sort of hallmark uh, products from the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Uh, it started in 2012, um, and it was initially timed to be released just before the nuclear security summit process yeah. that was uh, hosted by the uh, then-President Barack Obama. And But it has continued until this day, and we're actually getting ready now to uh, release the sixth edition, which will happen around mid-2023. So we're right now in the very heavy data confirmation process. Um, and what the nuclear threat uh, index or the nuclear security index is, is really looks assess it assesses the conditions in a country for strong nuclear security practices. So, you know, there's no access to classified information. This is all publicly available information. So we, we've got researchers, uh, looking at regulations, um, and all sorts of other, um, open source information in each of these countries to assess the conditions for strong nuclear security practices. Um, one of the more, one of the, the major elements that we look at is the amount of fissile material in a country. And so as we're seeing increases in nuclear material stockpiles in a lot of countries and expansion of nuclear weapons programs, um, that's going to have a negative impact. Um, I think what we've seen since the end of the nuclear security summit process is a, a slowing in terms of the action and the progress that we're making on nuclear security. And so um, we hope that this index does inspire countries to do more in this area. We include a list of actions that countries can take to improve their score. Um, and we get a lot of good feedback from countries on that. So we, we provide ideas for how to, to make progress. And as you may already know, Australia does quite well in the index. It's been number one um, for a number of the editions. And uh, stay tuned to see if you maintain that top spot. Well, I am going to ask you to um, – well, I'm going to sort of push you to try and, um, you know, breach the um, uh, the embargo and the confidentiality, and I'm sure you won't. But I, I'd be curious to know about Australia in regard to that because this index 
as I understand it, looks not only at um, you know physical uh, protection of, of uh, nuclear materials, but also looks, as you say, at regulation, uh, reputation, the whole you know multi-dimensional spectrum of, uh, of nuclear security. As you said, Australia has ranked very well. I think number one, in fact, in previous reports. Of course, an exceptional uh, change to Australia's standing is the fact that we now have a, a stated strategic uh, ambition to acquire nuclear propulsion for our submarine fleet uh, under the uh, the acronym of AUKUS. Do you expect, anticipate change to Australia's nuclear security standards more generally because of AUKUS? What can you say? Yeah, so that's that's a great question and one that we're 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 working on at the moment. Um, that said, I mean, we we look at the material that is located in the country when it's located there, right? So the fact that there's this stated goal um, is one thing, but the fact that the nuclear sub the presumably HEU fueled nuclear submarines are not yet in Australia that is good in terms of what the score will look like in the next edition. But when that that change does happen, I, th- I would imagine there would be a shift because, again, looking at the quantity of nuclear materials is a, an important factor. Um, but there are other factors. That's one of five, really. Um, another one that we haven't mentioned yet is sort of the international actions that countries take to demonstrate strong nuclear security practices. And this is an area, again, where uh, we've seen Australia excel um, in terms of their safeguards, commitments, um, in terms of their actions in the nuclear security summit process and the follow on work. And so, you know, those actions are, are going to be continue to be very important. And I think will be a positive reflection in the Australian score. All right. Well, we will, we will watch this space. Uh, and I would like later in the podcast to come back to some questions about not only AUKUS, but Australia's own agenda in, in, in nuclear security. One other country I'd just note in the index uh, that, that's quite prominent uh, has been India. And of course, uh, like quite a lot of people in this debate, I've been an advocate of the years of bringing India into the, the nuclear mainstream. So uh, about 15 years ago now when there was the movement to, if you if you like, create a, a special carve-out uh, for India in the non-proliferation regime, I was a strong supporter of that. Having said that, in your index, uh, India doesn't tend to rank very well. Has there been much change in um, in India's standing? Yeah, that's true. Um, and I think the index has gotten a lot of negative reviews in India because of the the lower scores. Um, and so that's something we agree with you on. We want to engage with India to help you know, improve nuclear security practices. And um, I think you saw in the 2020 edition that there was a, a significant increase in the score for Pakistan. Um, and a lot of that was based on um, them you know, providing additional information about the steps that they're taking to secure their nuclear materials. Um, and that would be something that we would very much welcome from India as well. So sort of maximum transparency on, on nuclear security. That's right. And 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 to the to the end of not providing, you know, not sharing secrets or not providing classified information, but for providing your neighbors with confidence that you're managing the security of your nuclear materials to the best of your ability. With the civil or military. Correct. Yeah. The the index, that's a good distinction. The index is very much focused on the civilian stockpile of nuclear materials, not on the weapons side. So I said we should maybe move back to Australia, and I'm keen to perhaps jump in right now on um, on AUKUS, which is uh, a hot topic in this country, uh, a significant strategic shift driven by our concerns about the strategic environment. I think the particularly the um, uh, the rise of of China's power and the way China is using it, its its power, if I could say that. But 
the um, I think the question ahead for AUKUS, of course, is um, how might this affect Australia's standing as a non-proliferation player? Because, uh, of course, Australia would uh, effectively be the first um, non-nuclear state to be acquiring or developing nuclear propulsion for submarines. So I guess I'm interested to understand what you think um, could be the plausible impacts of the AUKUS arrangement on the non-proliferation regime globally, and how could Australia do its best to mitigate any of those risks? Yeah, that's a, a great question and, and really um, important in terms of sort of setting the standard because Australia is not alone in uh, having interest in naval, naval propulsion. Um, I think about Iran, I think about Brazil, I think about South Korea. And so the standards that are being set with the AUKUS deal are going to be really important for uh, what happens in those countries around uh, nuclear naval propulsion. Um, obviously, it was a, a missed opportunity in my mind to consider a, a you know, an LEU, a low enriched uranium fueled core. Um, and, you know, from an HU minimization standpoint, you know, there are some questions still about that. But um, that point aside, I think there's a lot of good steps that Australia has taken in terms of its commitments around additional measures and safeguards. And most importantly is the wide area environmental sampling. This is something that was included in the additional protocol 25 years ago, and there's been very little movement on it in part because uh, back 25 years ago, the technology wasn't there to really implement this. Uh, I think things have changed in that 25 years, and there's a possibility to uh pursue wide area environmental sampling. And the fact that the Australian government is willing to to take that on is, a, again, uh, demonstrating Australian leadership on safeguards in that area. Maybe, maybe I could ask um, either or both of you to unpack that a little bit, a little bit further. For those of our listeners uh, who are not expert on the, the technical side of this question, what what does that sampling actually mean or, or look like? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that. So wide area environmental sampling is a concept that was actually first articulated in the additional protocol, uh, which was developed in the mid-2000s as a way to strengthen safeguards. Um, and uh, Australia has long been a leader in safeguards and was the first uh, state to sign an additional protocol. Um, but the wide area environmental sampling in particular has never really been used because at the time that it was articulated, it was envisioned as uh, a possible international system of continuous monitoring, which really was economically unfeasible at the time and still remains very challenging to think about how you would put in that, that large of a system. However, with advances in technology, we have greater capacity to do short-term uh, campaigns of sampling uh, radionucleotides in the air, collecting dirt samples and testing those for radionucleotides, uh, looking at a specific area and asking the question, is there nuclear activity happening here? And using data that's collected from the environment and analyzed in a lab to understand the answer to that question. And so really, if Australia were to try and implement wide area environmental sampling, they'd continue in its own tradition of being a pioneer in safeguards and helping advance safeguards into the future. And so that's essentially a way of helping to detect if there's been any kind of illegal diversion of nuclear material from a civilian to a, or from a civilian or propulsion to a weapons purpose. 
Exactly. And the advantage of wide area environmental sampling is it can be done outside of security perimeters because of the character of nuclear material and the way that it can move through an environment. So one could imagine having a campaign in an area around where naval propulsion is happening and yet being conducted in such a way that it doesn't uh, intrude on operations at the facility or reveal a lot of sensitive information. And of course, hypothetically, this would have to be, if you're talking about submarines, this would have to be when they're in port, because I guess the whole point about putting them to sea is to have them undetected. Wide area environmental environmental sampling undersea has not been tested yet, yeah. and uh, not sure how far that technology is going to go in the future. Look, um, if I can actually just um, stick with Australia for a moment, Jessica, and maybe if you can um, share some thoughts on this, what do you see as other opportunities that a government like Australia has in the, in the current global uh, strategic and non-proliferation environment, where we've got you know some pretty dark times. I mean, it's uh, it's it, it's been a a, a dreadful um, period in the last few years in terms of the use of force in the international system or the use of coercion. Uh, many of us who ten or 15, 20 years ago were probably uh, speaking for myself, uh, more optimistic about the future nuclear arms control and disarmament agenda have, have been, uh, you know, pretty dismayed by its prospects for the time being. At the same time in Australia, we have now a Labor government, very proud of its political traditions of support for disarmament, non-proliferation and arms control. Uh, Labor governments have done some big things here in the past. You know, we hear about the Chemical Weapons Convention or the entry into force of the CTBT or the Canberra Commission. But I get the sense we have a government that's looking for ideas about how Australia can be an effective uh, and ambitious international citizen on this agenda. What do you see as the opportunities? I think there are a number of different opportunities for Australia, uh, really building on Australia's history of being a responsible actor in nuclear policy and also being an influential player in the region. Uh, so as we look out at the international system, a lot of the institutions that have been in place for decades are under a lot of strain, uh, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine to uh, the way the Chinese are interacting with uh, the UN system. There's a lot of pressure being put on these global instruments that need vocal, active, consistent support from those who view them as global goods. So continuing to engage in those forums uh, to promote responsible governance and uh, encourage respect for those institutions that they deserve, I think could be a really helpful role that Australia could play on the international scene. And then engaging with your regional partners. Uh, certainly Australia has the opportunity to reach uh, the Asia Pacific in, in ways that European and, and American powers don't have. And so being able to engage with your partners and share that history and that confidence in the international system and help them see how they can contribute to that system would be tremendously helpful. What's your view, Scott? Yeah, I agree with everything that Jessica shared. But if we think specifically around the AUKUS deal, additional steps that Australia might consider, uh, one would be to make a commitment around no enrichment period. Right now, mm -hmm. there's a commitment uh, to have no enrichment of uranium around the AUKUS deal, but making that a little bit more broadly, that would be a, a really important step. And then second, you know, an area, we talked about this a little bit with the nuclear uh, security index, there's not as much known about the security of military 
nuclear materials. And this is an area that, um, you know, there's a lot of sensitivities, obviously, based on 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 the weapons. Uh, but if there's something more that Australia could do in this context, you know, knowing that these submarines will be coming here at some point, that could be another really important leadership opportunity for Australia. While we're looking at uh, Australia and the region, I, I do want to turn to China because uh, whether it's the AUKUS arrangement or whether it's a lot of the other very defensive measures that we've seen Australia and others in the Indo-Pacific take in recent years – it has overwhelmingly been in response to concerns about China's military power and the way China might use that power. And of course, nuclear is a significant part of that posture from China. So uh, I might uh, go to you first on this, Jessica. I know you specialise in some of NTI's China-related work. Uh, what do you see as the challenges and the opportunities ahead for engaging China in a constructive nuclear agenda when many of the fears we hear expressed are actually about the modernization of the Chinese nuclear arsenal? Not just modernization, but also growth. Uh, a recent estimate by the Pentagon from in the US estimates that China now has over 400 nuclear weapons um, and could have as many as 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. Uh, so that kind of growth in their nuclear arsenal is very concerning. Um, and unfortunately, China hasn't indicated what its end goal for its stockpile growth um, and remains ultimately unwilling to engage in arms control discussion. It maintains that it uh, will not engage in those kinds of conversations until they've gotten closer to parity to the United States and Russia. And I think that's an area that continued pressure on the Chinese is really important, um, particularly as they seek to grow their nuclear arsenal, having strategic stability conversations, understanding those chains of communication uh, between nuclear weapon states and also between China and non-nuclear weapon states is increasingly important. It's also important to emphasize that China maintains its its no first use policy and continues to support the the taboo against the use of nuclear weapons. Um, China certainly affirmed the statement that was made by all of the nuclear weapon states in January that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. And as China looks to expand its arsenal, potentially develop low yield nuclear weapons, which may be more tempting to use and, and have a lower barrier for use. And tempting to use first as well. Exactly. Reminding China of its longstanding nuclear policies and the the impact that any nuclear use would have, uh, not just in the region but around the world, is essential. What about production of fissile material? I mean, if, if there's growth in the Chinese arsenal, is that essentially using fissile material that was already effectively on the shelf, or, or what, what, what's the assessment in the um, in the expert community about uh, whether China is actually continuing to produce fissile material? Certainly, China remains reluctant to engage in discussions about limiting fissile material production. Um, so, I'm not up to date on the most current uh, assessment as to Chinese fissile material production, but certainly if they're going to be growing their nuclear arsenal, that material has to be coming from somewhere. Uh, and with the expansion of the potential applications of nuclear power around the world, the potential to use that as a cover to produce more nuclear uh, weapons material grows. Uh, so it's it's a challenge that we're going to be facing for many years to come. Well, one of the ambitions certainly a number of years ago was the idea of a, of a fissile material cutoff treaty. I mean, what's 
wh- where is that now, Scott? Is that uh, is that effectively uh, permanently on hold? Yeah, unfortunately, there's not much progress to report on the FMCT front. Um, it's been pretty much at deadlocks for quite some time. And again, seeing the trends that we're seeing in China and other countries as well, that we're seeing increases across the board. So um, I think that's a really important treaty and something that should continue to get focused, but I'm not optimistic for positive change anytime soon. So for a country like Australia, if we're, again, looking for those opportunities as a, as a, as a middle power, a middle player, uh, certainly a non-nuclear weapon state, to encourage um, stabilisation, nuclear security in our region, what messages could we be sending to China, for example? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, we, we saw a positive message come from President Xi in the context of the, the war in Ukraine, um, where he said recently that there should be no nuclear use in Ukraine. And so as much as Australia can, you know, take account of the positive message that, messages that we're seeing out of China and encourage continued good behavior in that area, I think is one important step that can be taken. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Looking across the region more broadly, across uh, the Indo-Pacific region, and I guess globally as well, but in our region there is growth in nuclear energy. There's obviously a um, an important climate logic to that. But the whole, uh, I guess, one of the whole points of the NPT and the and the non-proliferation regime was always to ensure that uh, nuclear energy would not have uh, effects in in terms of facilitating or encouraging weapons acquisition. How do you see that relationship playing out in the Indo-Pacific or globally now? I mean, how confident are you? And I'll start with you on this, Jessica. That um, continued growth in nuclear energy production in the world is not going to um, have proliferation consequences. I think when we look out at the landscape of non-proliferation efforts, we actually see a system that has been in place for decades that has successfully prevented the proliferation of nuclear weapons to a large number of countries. And yet, as we see more countries being interested in developing nuclear technologies, nuclear applications, nuclear power, the demands on that system are only going to increase. So it's going to be essential that the international community provide the IAEA with the resources that it needs, uh, financial resources, technical resources, personnel resources. There's going to need to be more cooperation amongst states in terms of training regulators and inspectors, um, 
communicating these nonproliferation norms to all parts of governments so that they understand the responsibility of the scientific activity that they're endeavoring to undertake um, and continuing to bolster the nonproliferation norms that we have so that nuclear power can be used for people peaceful purposes. So it's certainly a future challenge, but I don't see it as insurmountable. But let's look at the, I guess, the ugliest part of the picture in, uh, in, in, in the past year or two, and that is the, you know, the reality of war, the reality of uh, very substantial, very major, very brutal war in Europe, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the nuclear shadow over that conflict. Because I think when we're thinking about the future risk of proliferation or the threat or even the use of nuclear weapons, uh, this is probably the starkest illustration many of us have seen uh, about what what may be. So I'd be interested in thoughts from both of you on the consequences and the meaning of Russia's invasion and the war in nuclear terms. Two or three dimensions that come to mind immediately, one of course is that effectively the um, the threat that's been made a number of times by Russia or Russian leaders now implicitly or directly about the use of nuclear weapons uh, is affecting the, the risk calculus of everyone uh, and, of course, could be actually raising the salience of nuclear weapons uh, as something that's a strategically desirable asset to have uh, by a number of countries. Um, Scott, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you think that in a way uh, Putin has not only um, dev- attempted to devastate his neighbouring country but also made nuclear weapons more attractive? Yeah, that's an important uh, dynamic that I think a lot of countries are watching and are taking notes, right? What is Russia's somewhat veiled threats of using nuclear weapons in a non-nuclear weapon state uh, or against a non-nuclear weapon state going to mean uh, going forward. I would note that it's not been hugely successful, right? It has not prevented NATO from providing Ukraine with substantial weaponry to fight. It uh, has also not prevented Ukraine from directly attacking parts in, of, you know, military bases inside Russia. And so, um, you know, the lesson here isn't that having nuclear weapons gives you a trump card over everything. It's certainly not helped in these two dimensions, um, but yeah, there are definitely concerns. And what will countries that are um, threshold states who are very close, you know, have nuclear uh, infrastructure and could pursue a weapon in, in short amount of time? What are they looking at too in this in this context? And so that's why it's all the more important uh, for repeated calls for no nuclear use at all in Ukraine. And I guess there is the argument that's been made by some that if if Ukraine hadn't effectively given up nuclear weapons that were in its possession at the end of the Cold War, we might have a different strategic outcome here. What's the counter-argument to that? Yeah, I I don't buy that 100%. I mean, these were weapons that were being operated by Russian specialists inside Ukraine. Um, And so they weren't as if they were Ukrainian national assets. These were essentially part of the Russian state. Um, And so while it's certainly um, greatly regrettable that Russia has not withheld its commitments to not attack Ukraine in response to, uh, you know, in return for getting these nuclear weapons back, um, it's also- Which which was actually a commitment it made at the time. Exactly right. Yes. And uh, they've they've clearly broken that. Um, But it wasn't as if Ukraine had the infrastructure to manage those nuclear weapons. This is, again, remember what it was like in the early 90s. These countries were going through a huge economic- uh, crisis and the hundreds of millions of dollars that Ukraine would have 
required to maintain these nuclear weapons and uh, operate uh, the, the facilities just wasn't, um, you know, feasible at that time. What just to yeah, jump just in on that, uh, when you think about the effects of the war in Ukraine on nuclear power, nuclear applications more broadly, I can see it having one of two effects, maybe both simultaneously. One is a restraining effect. Certainly seeing mortars and guns being fired at a nuclear power plant is deeply disconcerting and leads to a lot of concerns about maintaining the safety of that material, the security of that facility, and just the operational conditions that those staff are working under is is horrific. So having that as a warning for potential future nuclear deployment, really trying to take into consideration what are the operating environments that these facilities will undergo and what are the operating environments that we never dreamed they'd have to live through. Uh, Certainly no one foresaw another war in Europe uh, and yet here we are. But I could also see it being an accelerating force for broader deployment of nuclear power as countries no longer wish to rely on uh, oil and gas coming from Russia, developing alternatives, uh, certainly in an era where there's a greater push towards green energy. Nuclear is increasingly being recognized as a green energy option. And that's an important turning point for nuclear power. In some ways, I'm actually encouraged by the lessons that we're learning from the war in Ukraine when it comes to safety and security of nuclear facilities. I think it's helping those that are endeavoring to develop new forms of of reactors, advanced reactor forms, to really take security considerations seriously and think very carefully about where they're putting those reactors and the unintended consequences. But I'm optimistic that we'll also see an expansion of nuclear power use as a reliable means to combat climate change and provide energy security for countries around the world. And I think it's incredibly useful to be looking at this from all sides because I think a lot of us can get very caught up into in the um, you know the headlines of the day. But there is that long trend towards uh, nuclear being part of the mix for a, um, uh, a low carbon or ultimately a net zero future that I think um, that you, you, you've illuminated. I still want to focus, if you like, one more time on the weapons proliferation risk. And then I want to conclude with a few thoughts on uh, whether, if you like, a different kind of global zero, global nuclear zero is a realistic option. But I'd ask both of you, maybe uh, Jessica first, in terms of proliferation risks, we've dealt for the past few decades with what seems to be the usual suspects. You know, Iran is pretty high on that list. Uh, once upon a time, North Korea was on that list, and it's no longer a, a suspect. It's it, it has a uh, it very proudly has a smoking nuclear gun. Uh, but it's not actually that many countries in this. Uh, environment since the NPT was introduced in the at the end of the 1960s. There's it, not that many countries that have openly stated nuclear weapons ambitions, and that's that's a good thing. So, what's the future of proliferation? Are we going to get some surprises? And what? How does the Ukraine conflict affect that? Certainly, I think the international community's response to the situation in Ukraine has demonstrated that there are consequences for violating international norms. Uh, Even as a nuclear weapons state, Russia's action in invading Ukraine has resulted in a lot of sanctions uh, on a, a number of different economic sectors. So it shows that that kind of bad behavior won't be tolerated by the international community. 
Certainly, there are a number of countries that have what might be described as latent nuclear capabilities. You think of just the quantity of nuclear material in Japan, and yet we haven't seen those countries actually embark on nuclear programs. Uh, so I think while those are certainly areas to be keeping an eye on, the international norm and the international system for preventing proliferation still seems to be holding strong and still seems to be working. What do you think, Scott? Yeah, I think it's a really important inflection point for proliferation. And, you know, the the easy lesson to be learned here is that, you know, if you have nuclear weapons, that will save you against getting invaded by your neighbor, right? That might be some of the conclusions that are being made. That said, um, I don't think that we're going to see a rush toward nuclear weapons in some of these threshold states. Um, there's a lot of responsibility and financial cost that comes with nuclear weapons. Um, in some ways, there are advantages to Iran appearing as if it wants to have a nuclear weapon, but yeah, not actually going, going all the yeah. way to get a nuclear weapon. And so I think you could look at that case uh, as one example of, um, you know, kind of weighing all the costs and responsibility that comes with having nuclear weapons. So uh, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that we won't be seeing, you know, a run on nuclear weapons in a couple of uh, different states in the next decade or so. And I guess one plausible future we worry about here in the Indo-Pacific for, for many reasons is uh, the way China might use its um, its capabilities. It might take aggressive action, even invasion uh, of Taiwan. And I think one of the shadows we worry about there is that in, in that scenario, for example, in a future where perhaps China, uh, you know, effectively conquered Taiwan, you would have a new rush of nuclear proliferation in this region. You know, Japan, South Korea, uh, for example, might look to that, uh, which is, again, a very good reason to try to maintain the status quo <laughs> across the Taiwan Strait. I don't know if either of you have uh, would have a comment on, on, on that. Um, not much to add beyond what you already said. The... Um, the closing question I have for both of you is about uh, Global Zero, uh, about the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, there are very uh, substantial non-government movements globally uh, advocating Global Zero. Of course, there's, uh, you know, there's effectively now a uh, a, a treaty that um, that looks to that future uh, that a number of countries uh, support. Uh, I think Australia uh, doesn't have a final position on, on on that treaty, and it's difficult to imagine supporting that treaty as uh, an ally of uh, a nuclear armed power that really has an extended deterrent um, protecting us from from nuclear coercion. But you know. There are uh, there are many thoughtful figures, including I think the um, uh, the really important uh, U.S. Um, political and foreign policy leaders who've supported NTI's work over the years, who have that vision of a world without nuclear weapons. Uh, it'd be just interesting to hear a final observation from either of you on um, the you know on that aspiration. Yeah, it's it's very clear from the NPT review conference and for years before that that there um, is a growing concern about the lack of progress on disarmament uh, from nuclear weapon states, and there needs to be some sort of action that demonstrates a commitment to disarmament. Um, we talked about the International Partnership for Nuclear Disarmament Verification earlier. That's one area uh, where we are seeing some progress, and I think it's important to highlight those areas. Um, but more needs to be done. And, and NTI has actually recently looked at um, sort of a new project, if you will, uh, looking at what a world without nuclear weapons would look like, 
right? You're going to need increased confidence um, in the fact that no one, no other country is pursuing nuclear weapons in a world that is disarmed, right? So what do the safeguards look like? What does the security measures look like? Um, and do we have what we need today to be able to support that kind of a world? Is the International Atomic Energy Agency the right agency to do that? Are safeguards as they're currently envisioned today sufficient for that? Um, probably not, because there's going to be a tremendous amount of additional nuclear material out there that will not be, will no longer be in weapons, but will still be weapons usable for decades. And so safeguards plus security plus what, what would we want to see? What would Australia, what would other countries want to see in terms of the, co- you know, confidence building measures from other countries and international organizations to ensure that no country would go back and build a nuclear device. And so we're starting to envision this world and uh, with the hopes that there are some steps that we can take in the coming years to start creating that. Jessica, I'll give you the last word. What's uh, on the one hand, what's realistic? And on the other hand, what is um, what, what is a worthwhile aspiration when it comes to, to global zero? I think maintaining the goal of global zero is a worthwhile aspiration. Uh, it is a goal that was set out in the non-proliferation treaty as uh, where we wanted to see the world go. And I think it is a complex challenge that's not unsolvable. Uh, I'm not sure the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is the correct solution, at least not at this time. I'm encouraged by efforts like the International Partnership for Disarmament Verification in tackling some of the really thorny technical issues to pave the way for uh political agreements on these kinds of challenges. And I think this is one of the great challenges facing uh, the future generations. And it's a really interesting problem to be working. And I think it is solvable. So while we may not see any progress happening this year or next year, I think it's too important to give up on that uh, goal without any uh, real effort from the future generations. That's a good note. To end on Jessica, I think that um, if we look at if we look at the history of, uh, of of nuclear weapons deterrence and arms control over, over recent decades, of course, it's often been crises that have actually brought about progress. And I guess one of the uh, the hopes we have to have, whether it's uh, here in the Indo Pacific or, or, or globally, is that we don't have effectively um, another Cuban Missile Crisis or two before we reach that that moment of strategic and political realization. So, thank you very much for your time, and thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.